Well, dear friends, I would ask you to please turn your very prayerful attention to that passage of God's holy word that we read earlier on, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, reminding ourselves that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed, it is given to us for our instruction in righteousness, that we may be thoroughly equipped, furnished for every good work. May the Lord help us as we come to his word. We don't listen simply to gain information, but we listen to be changed, to be renewed in our minds and our hearts. The Apostle Paul here has been given these things to say by the Spirit of Almighty God to declare to this church that was in a terrible state. Every church has sin. The church at Corinth had great sin. But they also had questions, and questions are a good thing. They wrote to the Apostle Paul with many questions. There was a delegation of men that went to the Apostle Paul, who was at Philippi. We're told that at the close of this epistle, Paul is writing from Philippi. And a delegation of men went to Paul, the Apostle, because there were troubles at the church. Paul ministered for some 18 months at this church at Corinth. At first he was greatly discouraged, but the Lord said in Acts chapter 18 for him to remain there, for he had many people in that place. And indeed the Spirit of God quickened many people there at Corinth. It was a licentious place. It was a place of great immorality, and uh, Venus was worshipped there. And apparently there were well over 1,000 sacred prostitutes in that place. We can't imagine any greater oxymoron than that. It was an unholy place. Marriage was perhaps not even a, 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 a sacred thing and a sanctified thing. And uh, many are asking, is it, is it right to marry? Is it right to be single? Is marriage a good thing? You notice, he says... In verse 1, now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, they had questions. That uh, second word there, concerning, is the Greek word peri, and uh, that's used several times, as we saw last time and the time before. As we go through this epistle, we we know what questions were asked the Apostle Paul. Every time he says, now concerning the things, he is answering questions. There was at this church... A great party spirit. People had been paying attention to not so much what the preachers were saying, not so much according to doctrine, but they were priding themselves in the eloquence of these men and the abilities of these men. And some of them were rather carnal. Many, however, of the ministers were true, like Apollos. Apollos is now with Paul. He tells us this at the close of this epistle. And many were saying that they were after Paul. Some were after Apollos. But Paul reminds them they're not to be divided. They're to be one in the truth. And they are to particularly pay attention to the truth. They're not to have schisms and party spirits. Christ is not divided. The church should never be divided. But it's the truth, isn't it, that unites the church. And that's really what unites people here. 
Those who are Christians and members of the church should be united in the truth. You never join a church if you don't agree with the doctrine of that church. And the church must never shift, change with the time. Sadly today, that's often the case. Preachers will accommodate people who don't like the truth just to get them in so that they can become members. And then the church becomes so worldly. The church is never to change with the time because the truth never changes whatsoever. Now Paul is continuing to instruct with regards to the truth. He has been telling us in chapter 7 because the question has been about singleness or marriage, whether to marry or not to marry. And remember, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, the question we should really begin every thing that we seek to do in our lives, we must always begin with this premise, I am not my own. It's not about what I want in life. The Christian doesn't ask that. The Christian says, what does God want? And uh, of course, all things, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, are lawful unto me. That is, called, that is, of course, all things that are lawful are lawful to me. It's not lawful to murder. It's not lawful to commit adultery. But everything is permissible, we could say. But all things are not expedient. There's some things that you may do in the Christian life that are not going to be expedient in terms of glorifying God. There are lots of things you can do. I use the analogy, and he uses the analogy here later, of food. You can eat all kinds of meat. But if you eat too much meat, if you eat too much food, you would rightly be called a glutton. If you drank alcohol and you were a drunk, you would rightly be called a drunk. And none of those things are acceptable in the body of Christ. Why? Because we are not our own. We were bought at a price. Once we lived as our own, once we said, my body is my own, I will live as I want. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. The church is not even going to preach to me how I should live, what I should do, what I should eat, what I should drink. Well, of course, we need to be governed by God's word. The church and every Christian is to be governed by the word of God. And God's word never gives us permission to do things just as we want. Not everything is expedient. Your life now as a purchased person for Christ is to live to his glory. You were once a slave to sin, but now you're a slave to righteousness. And then he uses another principle. All things are lawful for me, verse 12b, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Things you do excessively can exhibit that you have a lust that is sinful. It could be even eating, drinking. It could be some hobby. Even our downtime must be used to the glory of God. We are the Lord's 24-7. The whole of the Christian life belongs to the Lord. Yes, of course, we are allowed rest and holidays. But even then, we're not our own. 
We were bought with a price. And the same applies to marriage and what you do with your body. That's what he goes on. If you look at the rest of the chapter, he goes on to speak about this. And he goes on to say, it's a, it's a terrible thing to be married to a harlot. You who are Christ's, you shouldn't be. Look at verse 16. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For the two saith he shall be one flesh. And you can imagine this in Corinth. As I said, that place, that insidious place, where there were well over 1,000 so-called sacred prostitutes given to the name of religion. And uh, you see, it was commonplace. But it's a vile thing. The body is to be holy. He says here, the body is for the Lord. The body is for the Lord. And by the way, God is in your body if you're a Christian. Look at verse 20 of chapter 6. For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He says in verse 19, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. He keeps emphasizing this. You do not belong to yourself. So stop asking, how much can I get away with? What are the limitations? That's not how a Christian thinks. He doesn't think, how close can I get to sin? But he thinks, how far should I get away from it? As far as possible. That's the Christian's thinking. That's the Christian's life. And the question is, as he begins, whether to marry or not, marriage or not. Well, singleness and marriage, it's the same. Must be used for God's glory. If you're going to be single, you don't live as the single people do of this world. You spend their nights in nightclubs, and pubs and bars, frequenting these place, places. That's not the Christian. If he's going to be single, if he's a Christian, he will have power to live in such a way. And the same for the Christian, if he is going to be married, as we will see. That's that theme here, God gives certain men. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 of chapter 7 is a key verse. But as God hath distributed to every man, that is a, a particular gift, whether he's single or whether he is going to be married or she is going to be married. God hath distributed to every man. To Paul, it had been given to him to be single. That's not everybody's calling. And then he says, as the Lord, notice, hath called everyone. Verse 17, so let him walk. If man is called to be single, let him live singly. The question that was asked, is it good to touch a woman? Well, the context is, notice, now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. They were perhaps asking, as I mentioned at one occasion, there were Jews in the church, and the Jews would have thought marriage is a good thing, and it is a good thing. The Greeks, many of them, were perhaps against marriage. Certainly, many of the philosophers believed that. And so that's why you had such a lurid society amongst the Greeks and the Grecians and the Romans. 
They were given over to terrible sin. Marriage is a good thing. But you see, he answers it, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. It's better to have a wife than rather to burn. That's what he says later. Look at verse 7. For I would that all men were given as I myself, but every man hath this proper gift. You see, it's about a gift. This gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. Better not to burn with lust. It's all about the gifting of God, and you live in the power of that gifting, and you live in the calling of that gifting. So Paul has been speaking here by the Spirit on these things. Now, we arrive this evening in verses 17 to verse 24, and uh, Paul here is moving to the subject of virgins, which he is himself. Notice with me, brethren, he says in verse 25, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment. In other words, the Lord Jesus hasn't taught on this. He's not saying I'm teaching anything contrary to Christ, but he is saying I give my judgment. So as the Spirit has given, as one hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. He himself had obtained mercy mercy of the Lord, to be faithful. He was called to this, to be a virgin himself, to have no spouse. Now, what we will see, God willing, this evening in verses 17 to 24, is this really, we could say, is the theme. Because he's gearing up, he's moving now to talk about singleness. And what we will find in verse 17 to 24, the theme really is this, Abiding as we are and submitting to God's providence as we find ourselves in. That we could say is the overarching theme of these verses. Abiding as we are and submitting to God's providence, whether single or to be married. And you wait on the Lord. You don't push things. And you don't try to compare yourself with someone else. We have to ask, what has the Lord called me to? Now, this really follows on with the last two verses that we saw last week, ending in verse 16, where the man or woman has been left by the other spouse. They married. And then he tells us, doesn't he, earlier in verse 11, he says, don't put that wife away. That person is left, and if she depart, verse 11, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Marriage, as we said, is for life. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ taught. And Paul certainly doesn't usurp this teaching. Neither does Deuteronomy 24, as we saw. And this is what he says in verse 16. You let the person depart. And verse 16 says, For... What knowest thou, O wife? The person is still a wife. There's no divorce taking place. Adultery hasn't been committed. The person has just left. Whether thou shalt save thy husband, you see, still your husband, still your wife, or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? The call was to have peace. 
to be at peace with all men as much as is possible. But that person does not have, as it were, power over you in terms of they think that they can just use you and abuse you and come around the house any time they want. You must maintain dignity. They can't insist upon conjugal rights, and this was a problem just because they want to drop in. pains me to, to be so crude about it, but we must speak in such terms. These things happen, happen today. And uh, sadly, there's even physical abuse and beating of wives or even husbands happens both ways. It doesn't just happen one way. But that person does not have right. You must seek to be at peace. Show a good example. Pray for them. Now, the last two sermons we considered here in chapter 7. The first sermon really covered verses 1 to 6, where we thought of the Christian, whether it's right to marriage or not. And uh, this is what Paul has been asking, and we've dealt with that for a moment here. Marriage is good in the eyes of the Lord. In verse 1, Paul is not saying marriage is a bad thing when he says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. He is speaking on the subject here of being chased to the Lord as a single person. It's good. If, if a man can do that and if he's got the power and the ability, like the Apostle Paul, he should do that. But marriage is a good thing. How else would the world be propagated? How else would it be populated? Marriage is a good thing for many reasons. Firstly, of course, uh, for companionship, company, but also to have children. Marriage is holy. God ordained it before the fall. He brought Eve to Adam and gave him a helpmeet, a helper meet suitable for him. It's a good thing. And that's what Paul's been saying. Hebrews 13, verse 4, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Again, Paul is not saying here, don't marry. And we've made this comment before with regards to what the Church of Rome teach. They foist this upon their prelates and upon their priests to forbid to marry. As we saw, Peter was married. Paul even says in chapter 9 here, verse 5, Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as the other apostles, and as brethren of the Lord, and Cephas, or Peter? Very clear about that. The Church of Rome has used singleness for the most vile acts. It is a haven for homosexuality and terrible sins. Singleness is good, but if a man burns with lust, look at verse 8 and 9. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I, Paul was a virgin, single, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. So very clear. And then in the second sermon, be very brief for this, verses 7 to 15, we thought about what marriage should be like, according to God's word how it was prescribed in the beginning. The man is head of the woman. This is scriptural. And the Lord Jesus Christ stated plainly that the only grounds for divorce is 
fornication, sexual infidelity. Even in the case of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 6, divorce was only granted if there was an unquestionable case of infidelity and there were not two or three witnesses. It's very clear from those verses. However, the man or the woman divorcing the other partner could never take them back if they married somebody else. That would defile the land. So they better think long and hard before making that decision. Underscoring that marriage is sacrosanct. It is a sacred thing. It is holy. And it only terminates, as our Lord Jesus said, if there has been adultery. Now, if there were two or three witnesses, the person would have been stoned to death. So a break in the marriage would constitute death. And we say that in our vows, don't we? Till death do us part. We will love them in sickness and in health. And here, again, if you look at verse 11, the Apostle Paul emphasizes that even if the wife departs or the husband departs for whatever reason, and he doesn't even give a reason, there is to be no divorce. Let him not put the wife away. And by the way, there's no time frame there. You know, many people say, well, three years have gone by. The Scriptures, the Holy Spirit does not put a time frame there. Now, some would turn around and say, well, you go and you take the matter to the church, and if the person doesn't come back, you consider that person an unbeliever. But the Scriptures give no warrant for that. And another thing is, if you, the rules don't change in the New Testament from the Old Testament. There's no such law of that in the Old Testament, that if somebody departs, you then can divorce. There's no law like that in the Old Testament. You won't find it. There's no time frame. They must remain married. Now, in many cases, if the person goes, they may well commit adultery. And then the other, the innocent party, is then free to marry. But there may be cases, I didn't mention this last week, heaven forbid, if one spouse is physically violent and hurts another, well, you've got to leave that to the law. It's a crime. And uh, it would be right for that person to go to prison. And I don't think it would be long before others might notice physical injuries. And that's punishable under state law. And that would be right. But hopefully, even then, if you look at verse 15, if the person even departs, then is an unruly person. And verse 16, who knows, verse 16, whether that husband or wife might even repent, might even turn. Who knows? You don't know. What he leaves verse 16 open. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? You be at peace. That's what he says. But God has called us to peace. End of verse 15. And so we must be truly peacemakers. And those praying and showing a good example even to an ungodly spouse. But again, let me emphasize, adultery is the grounds of divorce, as the Lord Jesus said, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 19. He said, save 
for fornication. Matthew 19, 9, And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her, is put away, doth commit adultery. And we can't add to that. The Lord is very specific and clear on that commandment. Adultery, as I take it, is the only grounds. Otherwise, and it's interesting, the connection that is now made in verse 17, because he's just got off saying that. You don't know what God might do and whether your actions might lead to the person being saved as God humbles that person. But as God hath distributed to every man, again, power, you think about it, that person is left in that situation. As the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk, and so ordain I in the church. You stay in that calling. If the Lord has called you, God has ordained everything. You remain in that situation. You remain. Now, sadly, and I must say this, In many churches today, many pastors and many churches excuse and even encourage divorce for reasons less than adultery. They use terms like this, incompatibility, irreconcilable differences, or they just argue too much, or they're just not the same, unreasonableness. I can't bear with that person any longer, and so on. All of those are classified as reasonable reasons for divorce, but the Bible says nothing of that. Some will even say, well, emotional abuse. Well, how far do you want to go with that? You know, where do you draw the line with such a thing? If God has called you into that, it's in sickness and in health, even in mental illness. Imagine one of the spouses. That does not give you license to divorce. That you, you could even bring that down to physical illness, sadly. The spouse taken into a home. You stay married. Until death do you part. You promise to love that one. And again, another argument you can make for this, and I'm insisting on it, is, and it would be inconceivable that the Old Testament teaches nothing about any other case for divorce other than sexual infidelity. It would be inconsistent. inconsistent. God would be different. And God is the same. He said, I am the Lord, I change not. And it would be extremely unfair, wouldn't it? For somehow God to change the rules. Now, many of the reasons for divorce today, I have to say this, is that men are becoming like women. It's a sad thing. And they are not stepping up to the plate, and women are becoming like men. You've got men doing all the cooking and the cleaning, and you've got the women who refuse to submit to the basic role of a wife. They say, well, I didn't marry for this. Well, you read... Titus chapter 2, it's very clear. But the roles are, are being swapped today. It's a wonder that young boys are so effeminate today. 
and haven't got a clue on how to even put a nail in the wall. It, it's a sad day. Men must be men and women must be women. And let me say, pastors and churches are equally as bad because they almost allow any reason for divorce. Coming back to men, men need to be men and godly men. They need to lead their homes in daily prayer and godly example, bringing their family to church, bringing the family under the word of God. And it's there that they and their wives and their children, if the Lord saves them, lives will be formed. We've got to use the means of grace coming under the word of God and living as examples. And then women following in the way of Scripture. This business of feminism hasn't helped today. Well, even so-called Christian women, as I said, won't submit to the basic role of a wife, to cook and clean and care for their husbands and their children. They think that's something that the servant should do, or even the husband should do. And men, we should not be doing that, and we shouldn't be encouraging it. We're not helping. Now, as I said thirdly, we've got a problem with ministers today who have become very weak. And uh, often it's, I'm sure you've heard this, the wife says, well, I'll only submit to my husband if he loves me. Well, that's wrong. The Bible doesn't say that. Or the husband says, I'll only love her if she submits to me. Both husband and wife are called to unconditionally fulfill their roles. Husbands must love their wives no matter what. Wives must submit to their husbands no matter what. As unto the Lord, it says. Now as we come to verse 17, we're leaving these things behind and we're moving on. We're coming to the subject of singleness now. And what Paul is doing is he's preparing us for this. And what we will see henceforth now this we could really put over the title, Abiding as we are and submitting to God's providence. I mentioned earlier on what Paul says in verse 7. Go back to verse 7. For I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift. This is about God's gift. It's about his calling and he says, one after this manner and another after that. It's the proper gift of God, isn't it? And he says here, we pick up verse 17, but as God hath distributed to every man. He's speaking about gifts, calling, and ability. Now, he gives three principles in verses 17 to verse 24. And uh, we want to look at them. And you, you'll see there's a sort of repeated Principle, look at verse 17, but as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk. You come down again to verse 20, let every man abide. So you're staying in that walk that God has called you to walk. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he is called. And then verse 24, brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. So staying in. 
and enduring. That's the problem with a lot of marriages today. People give up. And they don't persist and realize that they're sinners. You, you haven't married an angel. You haven't married a perfect person. You've got to abide. You've got to grow in the grace. Now, what he does in verse 18, he gives us helpful examples of abiding and not changing. And uh, they're familiar examples. Circumcision or uncircumcision. Notice what he says. Is any man called being circumcised? He's just using this by way of analogy. Let him not become uncircumcised. You know, that would be a ridiculous thing, wouldn't it? Is any called into in circumcision? So you've been in uncircumcision? Let him not become circumcised. You don't become a Jew. You're saying abide. And that's true. In, the, in Christ, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. So you abide, who are you abiding? You're abiding in Christ. You're abiding in faith in Christ. He says in verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But the keeping of the commandments of God. Do you love God? You keep his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then he uses another example in verse 21. Slave or free. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. God's providence, if you're made free. Don't change it. You serve Christ whether you're a slave or free. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. You see, you're the Lord's, whether you are free or you're a slave. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. You're still Christ's servant. What he's saying is take your eyes off your situation and concentrate on serving the Lord. And that's true whether in marriage, whether you're a single. Why? Because you're not your own. You belong to Jesus Christ. And he will give you power and ability and ability in whatever he's called you to do. Don't think that he is ignorant of your circumstances. Verse 23, you are bought with a price. See, he's reminding us again. Be not the servants of men and so on. Verse 24, brethren, that every man wherein he is called, therein abide with God. That's a tremendous thought, and we'll close with that tonight. First of all, I want you to notice something else. In verse 17, what he's doing is he is emphasizing divine providence and gifting. That's what is being emphasized. The Holy Spirit is emphasizing divine providence, whether you are single or to be married, that is God's providence and gifting in that providence. Look at verse 17. But as God hath distributed, what? Gifts or a gift to be married or to be single. To be single, you've got to have spiritual strength to remain chaste to the Lord and not burn and go to all these worldly places. Some people can use singleness for the most terrible things, to serve the body, to sleep around. That is not the Christian. But if you're married, 
You use it for the power of God, for the glory of God. But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk. And here what is being emphasized is divine providence and gifting. Secondly, you'll notice in verse 20, he emphasizes divine direction. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. God has called you in a certain direction. That's how we need to think. And everyone is called to do this, as he says, or, or that. And then he emphasizes abiding in whatever you're called. Verse 24, brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. So providence, direction, and sticking at it. That's the Christian. He endures for Christ because he is Christ's. He's not his own. He doesn't wander off and do his own thing. Now, first of all, emphasizing in verse 17, divine providence and gifting. It's true in the one sense, isn't it? We are all vessels of mercy. We can think of God's providence. When we look at this world, there are well over 7 billion people upon this planet. Paul has to say to the Corinthians, you know, not many are called. And even not many are noble. Not many wise. But you know, it's not even that. God knew us and what we would be and where we would be born, who our parents would be, and he would call us to a heavenly calling. When did he do that? Before he made the world, in all eternity past. Grace was given us in Christ Jesus. We are vessels of mercy. Paul says in Ephesians 1.5, he says, Having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, according to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. It wasn't anything in us. He said, on this one, I will have mercy. On that one, I will not. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. David could say, the lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. God has called us all heavenward, whether single or married. If we're in Christ, he's called us heavenward and to glory. He chose the place of our birth. If you turn to Acts 17, even your days, my friend, are determined by Almighty God. You don't say, I'm going to live this long or that long. James says, you don't boast on what you're going to do tomorrow or the next year. He says, all such speaking is evil. He says, rather we should say, if the Lord will, we shall live. And God has determined where we live, where we will be born, and everything in our lives. Look at Acts 17, 26. And he and hath made of one blood. Paul here is on Mars Hill, and he is witnessing in this place of idolatry. And he's telling them of the unknown God. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and it determined, notice, the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. That is where you would be born. 
where I would be born, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. You see, God even brings the person into the remit of the church where they will hear the word of God, and so that he will work providentially through arrangement to that person coming to repentance and faith, and he will quicken them. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians, or rather the Lord said to Paul concerning the Corinthians, I have many in that place. The Lord had many in Corinth, many vessels of mercy. And then we read, for in him we live and move and have our being, and so on. It's by God. And more than that, our eternal inheritance was even set apart by God. Here we're thinking about how God has distributed to us. What has he distributed? Eternal life. And children, the things that we have and enjoy in this life, everything is of God. David could say, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. I don't maintain it. God does. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. That word, the lines, could be used when Joshua brought the people into the promised land. The lines, the demarcations of where the tribes would live. It's true for us in the spiritual realm. God has made us to inherit eternal life. And God gives us the people we need in our life. He sets us in a church where we need to be. He gives us a spouse or he doesn't give us a spouse. All things are of God. And he works, Ephesians 1.11, all things after the counsel of his own will. But even our physical bodies. You know, we're not all the same. God has made us all individuals, isn't he? Some are tall, some are short. We look different. We might have a plain face. We might have a beautiful face. But God has made us different. David could say in that Psalm 139, My substance was not hid from thee. And when he speaks of his substance, he means his body. David knew, or God knew exactly what David would look like. He knew what Goliath would look like. David would face so that God would get the glory when David slew Goliath for God's glory David could say when I was made in secret and curiously wrought literally the Hebrew is knit in the lowest parts thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect and in thy book all my members were written, which are in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. God has determined everything. What we look like, the gifts we have. Job could say, did not he that made me in the womb make him, speaking of another man, and did not one fashion us in the womb? Job 31.15. He knows everyone. And he knows our needs. 
doesn't he? When the Lord Jesus spoke about marriage and eunuchs, he says in Matthew 19, 12, for there are some eunuchs which were born from their mother's womb. Some are called. Some are gifted with that. Some can't have children, and the Lord knows. And the Lord knew what our faces would be. That's why we don't complain. Oh, I'm not like him. I'm not like her. I wish I... What are you doing? You're complaining against providence. That's what you're doing. And you're saying God's not fair. Well, if God were to be fair, we'd all go to hell, wouldn't we? We don't deserve anything. And God either keeps or gives things for our good. If we're children, if we're heirs of eternal life, you have to know that everything, even the body is given you, even the hair that I don't have on my head, that's for my good. And God's glory, for my limited intellect, that'll be for God's glory. Or for what I know, that should be used for God's glory. I am what I am. By the grace of God. And the grace of God is not in vain. And it's God that set Paul apart from ministry, wasn't it? Galatians 1.15, he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace. And then he goes on to speak about his ministry. But you know, Paul wasn't ready for the ministry for a long while. He had to be humbled. That he might indeed be abased. And that God would receive the glory. That he would never boast in anything of the Pharisees. That he would not boast in his learning under Gamaliel. That he would not boast in anything. But he would glory save only in Jesus Christ. Who called him by his grace. And even called him, separated him from his mother's womb. The place where Paul was born. The instruction that he had. You don't look back as a Christian with tears in your eyes, having any regrets. But you thank God for where you are. And whatever losses you have, you thank God for that. The second thing is he emphasizes in verse 20, divine direction. He says, let every man in the same calling wherein he was called, let him abide in the same calling. If God has called you to be single, be single. And thank God. And do it by his glory, by his grace and for his glory. Here we're thinking of our particular unique lives. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. And what is our calling? It is to walk worthy. Ephesians 4.1, hasn't he said, Paul, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherein you're called. Paul was a prisoner many times. And you know, when he was, whenever he was in prison, he walked worthy. He learned in whatsoever state he was in. To be content. And he said to the Ephesians there, he said, Did you walk worthy 
according to the vocation or the calling which you are called. What is it? Heavenward and to be united together in truth as Christians. We have all received a calling if we are Christians. And the main thing is to walk worthy, isn't it? Worthy of God. We're thinking back here earlier. The one spouse has left the other. You, now you are called to this. God knew it would happen. You have been faithful. Be faithful unto the end. Pray. Who knows, O man, or who knows, O woman, what will become of thy husband? You trust the living God. You're single. God hasn't provided someone. He's given you power. If you're burning, what do you do? You pray, you say, Lord, I have a need. I have a desire. If you're single and God has given you a gift to do many, many things, use that gift as much as you can into the glory of God. Don't want to change. It's a calling. To live for him. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. In your marriage, you use your marriage for the glory of God. For the raising up of your children. In the fear and knowledge of the Lord. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Submit to your husband. Reverence your husband as unto the Lord. Because that's God glorifying. Second Peter 1, Peter says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. And these are ways we make that calling and election sure. It's not by doing our own will, is it? And really here, this is sweet. Look at verse 24. Brethren, and here's emphasizing abiding. Who are you abiding with? Brethren, let every man wherein he is called, therein abide with God. The person that's single, you say, I'm on my own. No, you're not. You have God. The woman that the husband's left her, you're not on your own. You have God and you abide in God. Has he not said that he will be a father to the fatherless, a husband to the widow? You see, here's the key to life. If you abide in God, what did the Lord Jesus say? If ye abide in me and I in you, he who is God, not only will you bear much fruit, but you will know his presence and you'll know his power. That's the key to life, isn't it? God. That's the question. It's not so much whether you're single or whether you're married, but do you abide in God? Is God your friend? I know he's our creator, but he is the friend of Abraham. And he is the friend of his people. He's the friend of sinners. Because without God, you can't do anything. You can't live the godly life single Christian life. You can't. 
You live like a worldling if you don't have Christ in you. And, and you won't have a godly marriage if you're not abiding in God. See, that's the key. That's why I said verse 24 is sweet. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Abide with God. He is a father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows. Is God in his holy habitation. It says there in Psalm 68, verse 6, God setteth the solitary in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. And that's why we read before, sing O unto God. Sing ye praises unto his name. Extol his name. Rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless. A judge of the widows. You see, here's the key. You delight yourself in him. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. If you set your affection on God, whatever he has called you to do, you will find your desire there. And you will find yourself living a fulfilled and wonderful life to the glory of God. He'll give you power in the marriage. Unless you're abiding God, you'll have no power. You'll have no blessing in the marriage. And you'll have no blessing in the single life. He's come to live and abide in his people. That's a sweet thing, isn't it? We read in Psalm 84, The Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. And no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. We want good gifts, don't we? Well, what did the Lord Jesus say? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good, give good things to them that ask him? But here's the thing. When you receive the gift, do we thank the giver? And do we live for the glory of the giver? That's it, isn't it? You know, many people will receive a husband, a wife, or even a single life, and that's what they want, and they can glorify God. But will you give that life to God? Will you render to God what is God's? Remember what the Lord Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And we all concentrate on that. We think, okay, yeah, pay your taxes. But he went on to say, and render to God what is God's. And you are God's. You are his creature. You are his vessel of mercy. Abide in him. So we see there in the last place, he emphasizes abiding. And as we abide in him, what did the Lord Jesus say? He said something very profound, didn't he? In John, if ye abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. He said, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into fire and they are burned. 
If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what ye will and it shall be done for you. The key is abiding, isn't it? Some people, I think we read it before the sermon, come to church for a spouse. And you see them no more. Never really came for the Lord. Some people come just to have their lives washed up a little bit, cleaned up a little bit, and you see them no more. And it's not long till those relationships break up. My Bible says a threefold cord is not easily broken. You have God in your marriage. You have God in your life. God will keep it and bless it. Amen.